Well, this is part five, part five of our series in Christ in the Old Testament. And this week we're talking about Jacob and I've got some maybe controversial things to say because some of you probably have never heard the idea that I'm going to bring forth today that Jacob didn't do anything wrong. And um, we're going to see why. And um, what I mean by righteous deception, I don't mean that I'm advocating that you guys should start going around deceiving people, but rather that this was a deception that was necessary. And um, if we, if if I was able to convince you last week about, you know, you know, the bride and Christ and all of that, I'm sure this week, this week is a lot less uh, uh, easy, or it's it's more easy to kind of receive well. So. Last week, we looked at this idea of narrative and prophecy. That is that God has, in the way that he set up situations and events, he has formulated something that is prophetic in the very story. And so we saw last week how there was this servant who went to go get Rebecca, and the servant spoke of the Holy Spirit. And, and that all of, all of the stuff that happened in that story was not only was it an actual true historical event, but the way that it was unfolded speaks to God's future plan for something else. And so again, we're going to see this week how that's true in this, um, in this passage. And then we're going to cover this idea of righteous deception, and we'll see what I mean by that. And then finally, uh, the big main element this week is the, the idea of the incarnation and how this story speaks of that. Last week, we looked at this verse, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Peter's writing explaining the prophets who prophesied in the past. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through through uh, through those who pr- have preached to you the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which ang- angels long to look. So this this idea here is Peter is is describing these prophets who wrote beforehand, and that that phrase prophets is just a common phrase in the Hebrew to describe all of the writings in the Old Covenant. So he's not just talking about Isaiah or something like that. He's actually talking about Moses all the way forward. And we're not going to look at it, but in Genesis 20, Yahweh says to Abimelech that Moses is actually a prophet. Yet Moses doesn't really prophesy anything. And so this idea of prophetic narrative is Abraham's existence was a prophetic existence. His actions were prophetic actions. And so everything that's written in the past is... Um, is uh, you know, a, a symbol or a pointer forward to to what's happening here in this story. And so this idea in in this in this week is how this unfolds here is this idea of narrative and prophecy that Rebecca in this scenario, she heard the word of the Lord, and yet Isaac was about to go do something that was against God's word. And so she she hears that the older is supposed to serve the younger and Isaac's about to not let that be the case. And so why is this prophetic? Well, because God knew that Esau was going to despise the birthright. And because of that, 
he set it up in such a way that he declared to Rebecca beforehand that the older is going to serve the younger. So she takes action when her husband is about to go against the word of the Lord to prevent him from sinning and also to continue to move things forward. So this idea of righteous deception, it might sound like a foreign idea, but I want to do a community thought experiment. Okay, imagine you're living in World War II Germany. And you, being a great and righteous Christian, have decided to hide Jewish people in your house. And the Nazis, being terrible, evil people, are killing Jews. And you know this. It's common knowledge what's going on. Everybody knows the situation. We all know what's happening, okay? So, knock, knock. Uh, hi, I'm from the Nazis, and I want, to come and I want to come and take the Jews who are in your house. Where are the Jews? Okay, how many of you think that it is a lie to say you're not hiding any Jews. Anybody? Okay. Well, we need 100% agreement for it is it is a lie. Okay, there we go. 100% agreement. Now, now, okay, so that's so we've established that is a lie. Is it unrighteous or evil? No. Of course not. No one ever raises their hands. Why? Because the Nazis are killing Jews. And to tell them that there are Jews in your house is to become an accomplice to genocide. We all intuitively know that you don't tell the Nazis that you got Jews in your house. And so, you know, next time that comes about, keep that in mind. Uh, but I make, I make jokes about that, but in, in all seriousness, that we all intuitively know in that situation that it is evil to help evil people. And it is evil to go against the word of the Lord. And the, the word of the Lord says that you do not murder. And so to help them murder would be, would be evil. So both Isaac and Abraham, we haven't focused on this, but in the past, they were sojourning through the land and the purposes of God were on them in that sojourning. And they deceived those who were in the land saying that their wives were actually their sisters. Now with Abraham, the first time it was kind of a, a half truth. And then with Isaac, she was really his cousin. So it she wasn't a sister, but that might just be semantics. We might not have known what they said in the Hebrew. So they lied to protect the purposes of God, knowing that the, the men around them, when they were sojourning through the land, would have killed them and destroyed the purposes of God. And it's, it's actually very, very clear. This, is, this takes up a huge amount of space. In a book that's only 40 chapters, three chapters are devoted to the retelling of this story time and again, both Abraham twice with Egypt and Abimelech, and then Isaac again with Abimelech. And then you see Jacob deceiving people even after this first deception in which he kind of lies to Laban so that he will go away from Laban with more riches and blessing. But we're not going to get into that. But I just want to make it clear, this isn't a, the first time in the scriptures that there has been this deceit. And so if you don't like the term righteous deception, you could at least say deceiving the deceiver. That might be more palatable for some of you. So in Exodus 23 verses 1 and 2, the Bible doesn't say don't lie. <clears throat> in those words, it says, do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. We all know it would be a malicious thing to do to bear witness that there's a Jew in your house when the Nazis are coming to look for them and kill them. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. That, that, that's exactly the same situation. It would be wrong to follow the crowd. The, the common culture in World War II Germany would have been to give up the, the Jews. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, 
Do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And Jesus told his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. It is not unbiblical to hide from those who are wanting to destroy, nor to subvert those who are intending to or not intending to destroy the purposes of God for that generation. And so that's what Rebecca does, and that's what Jacob does in this situation. We're going to see how that actually points to Christ, which is kind of kind of beautiful to me. So this other idea that we are focusing on today is the incarnation. It's really, really simple, uh, and it's mysterious. Jesus is fully God. And in Jesus being fully God, he has always existed. In John 8, 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And I am is the name that... Yahweh declared to Moses when Moses asked him, who shall I say sent me? Yahweh responds with the name I am. So Jesus did not start existing at his conception, but rather he always eternally existed. John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So those first three verses say, in the beginning was the word. When the word was, the beginning started. So at this place where where the word is existing, then the beginning happened. So when the beginning began, the word was already in a state of existence. If that helps you think about it, which is kind of nice because it, it fits well with the next two parts. And the word was with God. That is not only was the word in existence when the beginning started, the word was with God. So they, they had a fellowship. And then finally the word was God. So not only is Jesus there at the beginning, but he was with the father and he's equal to the father. He was in the beginning with God. And then verses four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then picking up in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified, him, uh, testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So what John the Baptist is doing is making a public statement. We saw last week how John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus being the bridegroom was integral to getting that understanding of the bridegroom right. And just in the same way, John the Baptist's testimony here is extremely important. He's saying, he who comes after me is greater than I. In Hebrew society, if my brother and I are interacting in society, I always am preferred to either speak first at a banquet or talk first in a business deal, or if I'm going to buy some land, I'm going to act first before my brother does because I'm older than my brother and being the firstborn in my firstborn male in my house, I would have received uh, a, a blessing from my, from my father. That's basic Hebrew relations. 
And so in this statement, it's publicly known that John the Baptist came about, he, his ministry was public before Jesus's ministry. And so when John the Baptist is saying, he who comes after me is greater than I, he is saying that Jesus existed before his birth. And that's amazing because it's the only way that's possible is for Jesus to be God. And so this, this story about Jacob and Esau, we're going to see, is talking about the, the idea of the incarnation, that Jesus took on flesh. So let's get into the story. Esau takes another, he, he kind of replays the role of the last Adam. He's a sinful man because he was born at first, he had the right to what we call the birthright. That is the right to receive a blessing from his father and to receive the majority share of all the possessions. And so in that day, it was extremely important because we didn't have, you know, Kroger, uh, that you received some sort of material blessing to sustain you or else in the lands that they were living in, it would have been extremely difficult to acquire. You would, you would, if you didn't have a lot of stuff, you would be scraping by to get, you know, a few things set up like water and livestock and tents and things like that. If you've already got a big amount of supply to start with, that's going to help you get further in life. And so it's, it's not only a spiritual thing, but it's a very necessary, real physical thing. In the same way that Esau despised his birthright, so Adam also had the wonderful company of Yahweh coming down in the cool or in the spirit of the day. It says that God came down in Genesis 3.8 in the cool or the spirit of the day. And theologians for the last 2,000 years plus have all agreed that this was a typical experience for Yahweh to come down and to share with Adam and to walk with him. And yet Adam despised that covenant and that community and that fellowship that he had with Yahweh in the garden. And so just like Adam disdaining God's fellowship and breaking God's law, so also in this story, Esau despised his birthright. Esau was supposed to be the next person in the line of covenant heads to, uh, to receive the blessings of God and to carry forward the purposes of God on the earth. Yet in space and time, Esau worked out what God knew beforehand, that Esau was an unrighteous man. And Esau here rejected the birthright, choosing instead a temporary pleasure of being satiated with food instead of uh, keeping the birthright. First, he doubted God's ability to sustain and provide for his life and then scorned the blessing that was to come. Jacob, on the other hand, is a righteous man, and this is where we're going to pick up Jacob being a pointer forward to Christ. So Esau is just like the last Adam and Jacob is kind of like the new man, the, the, the last Adam. And so Jacob knows that his brother is an unrighteous man who has despised not only the purposes of God, but in doing that, he, Esau has also despised God himself. And in the same way, Christ knowing that Adam would go astray, eternally purposed in the Father to come and redeem mankind from the fall. Both events were known beforehand, and both times those who were to right the wrong uh, made plans to do so. Jacob clothed himself in skins that made him appear to be like Esau. Not only did he put on the flesh of the goats to make himself appear like Esau, 
he also put on Esau's clothing. So he not only walked like Esau, but he also appeared like Esau and took on the nature or the things that were common to Esau. That is his clothing. So Christ, in the same way, at the fullness of time, clothed himself in humanity and took on the form of a servant. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jacob offered his two choice young goats to his father to obtain a blessing and bring the covenant back into order. In the same way, Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit without blemish. Jesus was in a state of perfection in his humanity. And so when, when we see Jacob offering up two choice or two special goats, this is reminding us that not only any sacrifice is going to please the Father and atone for sin, it rather had to be a perfect sacrifice. Not only was it a perfect sacrifice, but it was also completely satisfactory. Jesus or Jacob offered his father savory food, or another phrase is food such as I love. That is, Jacob knew what his father wanted from him. This is mentioned three separate times, and the, the phrase savory food is mentioned six times in this chapter. It was very, very important. The writer wanted to nail home this idea that this was pleasing to the Father. In the same way, Christ offered a perfectly pleasing, acceptable, and satisfactory sacrifice to the Father. Jacob took Esau's place and received the blessing from his father, writing the course of God's purposes on the earth. In the same way that Jacob did that, Christ died in the place of mankind and received the curse that was due to Adam from his father, earning a blessing from all those who turned to him. I, I hope that makes sense. And there's a lot to kind of wrestle with here in, in terms of, you know, I've never heard it be said that Jacob wasn't doing something wrong. A lot of people think that Jacob was doing something wrong in this story, but he really wasn't. He was pointing forward to how Christ was going to die in our place. And that while the enemy thought they were winning a battle, it's actually the case that Christ won the war in that action. Um, Paul has a very large amount to say in the first four or five chapters of Corinthians. If you want to see how and why this idea is defended, that Christ not only gave a satisfactory blessing to those who would follow him, but also that he fully atoned for your and my sins, for those who trust in him, that he deceived the deceiver in going to the cross. It's actually the wisdom of God which appears foolishness to, to the world. And so in him, in Christ, he took on the curse for us and has obtained a blessing for us. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Let's close with prayer. 
Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We ask you that time and again, you would strike our hearts with beautiful things that David prayed, that you would show him wonderful and beautiful things from your word, that he would be able to keep your commandments. And God, we ask you that we would be completely satisfied with your word as a source of life and sustenance and entertainment and joy and fun. God, we ask you that you would give us eyes to seek out little treasures in your word. And God, we we ask you that you would continue to do what you've been doing in these last five weeks, that you would help us, that you would give us eyes to see the the common threads throughout all of the old covenant that point us forward to Jesus. And Father, we ask you that you would help us in wonder and awe behold the mystery of the incarnation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.